You are listening to another No Fair Remembering Stuff, the Tuesday edition of the Professional Left Podcast, and available wherever you get your podcasts, and at our website, proleftpod.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There is a Patreon button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution at the Professional Left Podcast, P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. And it's not safe for work. to the presidential campaign of 2000 and the number one domestic campaign promise made by then-candidate George W. Bush. Remember George Bush? In fact, it would be fair to say that this campaign promise was the only campaign promise that Bush actually kept. And in fact, he kept the hell out of it. Yep, it's the budget surplus. Specifically, the Clinton budget surplus. How it came to be, where it went, and why every time Republicans open their mouths to talk about the federal budget, they are lying. If you're a younger listener putting together the words budget and surplus in the same phrase, probably sounds alien to you. But there was a time. Oh yes, there was a time. Those were the days, my friend, we thought they'd never end. Also, If you're one of our modern monetary theory MMT friends, this topic may drive you crazy, Uh, which is why, although we will be citing an economist or two, this is definitely not a conversation about the economics of deficits. No. This is not about whether or not it is something which objectively anyone needs to worry about. Um, We are not talking about modern monetary policy, uh, monetary theory today. This is about the political utility of Republican deficit scare tactics and how their allegedly deeply held principles about deficits wax and wane, depending, surprise, surprise, on which party is in the White House. Shocking, Blue Gal. This is, is going <laughs> to shock a lot of people, this no, podcast. It's not. <laughs> now, I did some digging for this uh, podcast, and I spent yesterday doing a lot of deep, deep research, and on that note, do any of you remember, without peeking, a 1985 commercial that was commissioned by an international chemical company called W.R. Grace? It showed a group of children in tatters sitting in judgment on an old man who was being charged with allowing the federal deficit to run rampant. The commercial was 60 seconds long, and it was entitled The Deficit Trials 2017 A.D., And believe it or not, it was initially rejected for broadcasting by all three networks. Remember when we had three networks? Ha! Back when such a thing was possible, you could embargo something that you didn't want across three networks. The networks rejected it on the basis of it being too controversial and too one-sided. So WR Grace, having a lot of money, turned around and bought time on 150 independent stations. Then NBC Vice President Rick Geider was quoted as rejecting the commercial because, quote, it's so well done. It expresses a view that budget cuts are a moral imperative, unquote. And it didn't even entertain the notion that, you know, just maybe raising taxes is also a valid option to pay down the deficit. Only massive budget cuts could do the trick. And here is the commercial, more or less in its entirety, and we're going to include the link to it in our show notes. 
Yeah, I think it'd be better if you watched it rather than listen to it, but here's the gist of it. No one really knows what another generation of unchecked federal deficits will bring. This frightens me. No more questions. I have a question. Are you ever going to forgive us, Nick? But we know this much. You can change the future. You have to. And it's no surprise it looks great. Um, this is from Time Magazine, February 10th, 1986. Quote, as the head of a special committee on cost control, Peter Grace, chairman of W.R. Grace, made thousands of recommendations on how to slash the U.S. budget deficit. Since he delivered his report to President Reagan in January of 1984, Grace has waged a personal crusade against the government's spendthrift habits. His company recently hired movie director Ridley Goddamn Scott, you know, Alien, Blade Runner, that guy, to create a TV commercial that would alert viewers to the horrors of huge deficits. The result is The Deficit Trials 2017 AD. Not a a Star Trek episode. No, it's a futuristic fantasy that cost around $300,000 to produce, unquote. Important to keep in mind is that the only thing conservative elites care about is cutting taxes for the rich. And they're very transactional about that with the Republican Party. You need to do this for us. At all times and under all circumstances, there is no problem so great that they claim can't be solved with a big enough tax cut. Wars may come and go. And as for the traditional battle cry of guns, God, gays, those are all merely means to the end of getting enough Republicans elected so that they can have more tax cuts. Even during times of budget deficits, you got to cut taxes to stimulate the economy, yada, yada, yada. And you know the drill. It's utter bullshit. That's it. Class dismissed. However, under Bill Clinton, Republicans had a different problem. The opposite problem. One they'd never anticipated. What to do when under a Democratic president, the United States starts running budget surpluses and now has enough money on hand to fund those social programs that Democrats had always wanted to improve, and Republicans were always demanding to be slashed because, hey, there's a budget deficit. Don't you care about the deficit? Yeah, yeah we'd love to fund those those lunch programs and those welfare programs, and those health poor. but there's a deficit. We can't fund that. We're in debt. My God, why can't we run this company like a business? Well, now the business <laughs> is running a profit. So what are you going to do now? But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to one of the primary reasons that Clinton's predecessor, George H.W. Bush, lost in 1988. If Bush the elder is known for one phrase above all others, it's either his stand on prudence. This is George Bush. I was your president from 1989 to 1993. And during that time, Saturday Night Live made fun of me on a fairly regular basis. Do I have any hard feelings about that? Yes, I do. And I'll have my revenge when the time is right. Not now. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. Or it's this. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will and the Congress will push me to raise taxes and I'll say no. And they'll push and I'll say no. And they'll push again and I'll say to them, read my lips. No. No new taxes. That was his keynote address at the Republican National Convention in 1988, where he accepted his party's nomination. And you know what? He won. 
<clears throat> but he and his boss, Ronald Reagan, had spent the last eight years giving massive tax cuts to the wealthy, lowering the top marginal tax rate from 73% to 28%, which was the lowest the rate had been since 1925. They also massively increased military spending. And by Bush's second year in office, people were starting to freak out about the size of the federal deficit. And so, in 1990, Bush the Elder broke his promise, and the opposition that fired up inside the Republican Party, plus an insurgent third-party run by a guy named H. Ross Perot. Remember H. Ross Perot? I do. Pretty much doomed his presidency. This is from NPR, December 14th, 2018. The six little words that helped make George H.W. Bush a one-term president. Quote, less than two years after making the no-tax pledge, Bush found himself in circumstances in which he no longer felt he could keep it. Locked in budget negotiations with the majority Democrats in the House and Senate, Bush felt he had to allow higher rates on some existing taxes or the Graham-Rudman Deficit Reduction Bill would shut down important services of the government. Hey, Blue Gal, remember Graham Rudman? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yep. So Bush signed off on a compromise involving revenues as well as spending restraints. Democrats exulted at having forced him to renege. Conservatives seethed. A young Newt Gingrich, elevated to the number two spot in the House Republican leadership the previous year, made no secret of his displeasure. He insisted any option was preferable to any new revenue. That position also helped inspire a major Republican challenger to Bush's renomination in 1992. You know, because challenging incumbent presidents always makes for a great Such election. Such a great idea. Such a great idea. I'm, <laughs> it, it's like young Nate Silver was right there going, no, no, this is going to work out great. This is this This, this, this will is be what, perfect. Yes. This is just what the Republican Party needs. And that uh, insurgent was named Patrick Buchanan, a former communication director for Ronald Reagan and a familiar TV commentator. He announced his campaign for president in December of 1991, saying he was running, quote, because we Republicans can no longer say it's all the liberals' fault. It was not some liberal Democrat who said, read my lips, no new taxes, then broke his word to cut a seedy backroom deal with the big spenders on Capitol Hill, unquote. And this was one of Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign ads. Notice that the objection in the ad isn't about taxes per se, but about Republican unfairness and hypocrisy. 1988. Read my lips. No new taxes. Then George Bush signed the second biggest tax increase in American history. Read my lips. George Bush increased taxes on the middle class. Bush doubled the beer tax and increased the gas tax by 56%. Now George Bush wants to give a $108,000 tax break to millionaires. $108,000. Guess who's going to pay? We can't afford four more years. So for most of the Reagan-George H.W. Bush era, the attitude was, who gives a shit about deficits? We won. Reaganomics rules. Tax cuts rule. It's morning in America. And if the deficit needs to be cut, just slash a bunch of programs for those mooching poor and everything will balance out. Yeah. Deficit schmeficit. Then Bill Clinton was elected. And suddenly... Republican talking points about the deficit changed entirely. Suddenly, holy mother of God, in the middle of the night, while no one was looking, a horde of mooching welfare queens snuck in here and nearly destroyed America with deficits. Everyone knows deficits are worse than Hitler. We need to cut everything. Cut 
welfare and Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and school lunches and everything in the next 60 seconds or we are all doomed. Now, Alan Greenspan, remember Alan Greenspan, Driftless? Mm-hmm. He let Clinton know before his inauguration that the situation was even worse than anyone outside Republican inner circles had been told. This is from Bob Woodward's book, Behind the Boom. Quote, on the five-hour trip back to Washington, Greenspan tried to assess what he had observed. Clinton was what Greenspan termed an intellectual pragmatist. The term also applied to Greenspan himself. Clinton's campaign promises included tax increases on the wealthy, a violation of Republican orthodoxy. But increasing taxes reduced the federal deficit. And those deficits, Greenspan thought, were such a threat to the future of the economy that it might just be worth it to support Clinton's proposal. Mm -hmm. One of the paradoxes Greenspan realized was that by running up the federal budget deficits, Reagan had effectively borrowed from the period that was now going to be the Clinton era. Clinton would have to pay it back by paying down the deficit in some way. The irony was that Clinton probably wouldn't have been elected if Reagan hadn't created the deficits, unquote. It's so dumb. <laughs> well, it, it's actually, it goes back to a, the, uh, something called the two Santa Claus Two theory. Santa Claus, right. Yeah, which is right. Republicans. Which people del- should Google. Yeah. T- yeah. Republicans deliberately run up deficits so that Democrats don't have any money to spend on anything they want to use. They, they right. do it on purpose. They do it all the time. So now Clinton was told by men like Greenspan that the markets would collapse and the world would be plunged into a who knows what kind of economic apocalypse unless he put all his liberal promises and programs on hold and focused almost exclusively on cutting the deficit, which Clinton did. Mm -hmm. Plans for improvements to health care, Social Security, education and poverty programs were either shelved or greatly reduced. The phrase "paygo" entered the political lexicon. Every budget item had to be accounted for with a matching revenue source, and any new spending would have to be offset with matching cuts to other spending. Clinton reluctantly went along with all of it, but he also insisted on some revenue increases as well. After all, if massive, reckless tax cuts got us into this mess, surely a few sensible tax increases could help us get out of it. Yeah, but of course, Republicans categorically rejected every bit of it. <clears throat> According to them, any tax increase would completely destroy the economy and America would be reduced to nothing but a smoking hole in the ground. Why did Bill Clinton hate America so much that he wanted to raise taxes <laughs> and destroy America? Bill Clinton also proposed a modest increase in the minimum wage, which, surprise, surprise, Republicans categorically rejected as well. According to them, any increase in the minimum wage would completely destroy the economy and America would be reduced to nothing but a smoking hole in the ground. Oh my God, why does Bill Clinton hate America so much that he wants to raise the minimum wage a little bit? Now, the Tax Reform Act of 1993 aimed to cut the federal deficit by increasing taxes and reducing spending. It was signed into law by President Clinton in 1993 and not a single goddamn Republican in the evenly divided Senate voted for the damn thing. Does that sound familiar, Blue Gal? Mm-hmm. Complete Republican obstruction to fixing a problem they fucking well created? Yeah. And it passed 51 to 50 because Vice President Al Gore was there to cast the tie-breaking vote. Good for Al Gore. 
the act raised the top federal income tax rate to 39.6%. Remember, Reagan cut it from 78% mm-hmm. down to mm-hmm. dust. So this was not a huge increase historically. This was just raising it enough to raise some real revenue, as well as many other taxes, including corporate taxes, fuel taxes, and so forth. And by 1998, it allowed Clinton's administration to achieve, say it with me now, the first balanced budget in three decades. And by the time Bill Clinton left office, the United States was running a steady, growing, multi-billion dollar budget surplus for the first time in American history. From a Clinton White House press release, September 27, 2000. Mm-hmm. Today at the White House, President Clinton announced figures released by the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, showing that this year's budget surplus will be at least $230 billion, the largest unified surplus ever, the largest unified surplus as a share of the economy since 1948, the third consecutive year with a surplus for the first time in over 50 years, the eighth consecutive year of fiscal improvement for the first time in American history, and the first surplus excluding Social Security and Medicare, making it the only on-budget surplus since Medicare was established in 1965. Yeah. And this is from the same press release uh, from a different section, quote, the largest debt reduction ever. As a result of the budget surplus, the president's plan to eliminate the debt by 2012 remains on track. That's eliminating the debt, not the deficit, the whole goddamn debt. The 12 cents of every federal dollar we currently spend on interest payments would be eliminated. No more interest on the debt being a big chunk of the actual budget. The U.S. is on track to pay down more than $360 billion in debt over three years, the largest three-year debt pay down in our history. Under 12 years of President Reagan and Bush, the debt held by the public quadrupled, unquote. This is from the Brookings Institute, December 1st, 2000. Quote, a surplus if we can keep it. How the federal budget surplus happened. It's the economy, stupid. The battle cry of Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign has been recycled to explain how a $290 billion budget deficit has been transformed into a $100 billion surplus that is expected to quadruple in the decade ahead. Liquidating the deficit ranks as one of the supreme budgetary accomplishments in American history. If the 1989 tax structure were still in place, there would be no surplus to discuss, unquote. It really is as simple as that. It really is. So this is all pretty great, right? We all agree this is pretty great. All those really cool, important, vital programs that Democrats have been forced to postpone or put on starvation diets so they could pay down the Reagan-Bush deficits, right? Now we can start paying for those programs with some real money, right? Which was, you know, one possible future of our country. That's one path we could have taken. And then came the presidential campaign of the year 2000. This is from the New York Times, June 13th, 2000. Quote, The 2000 campaign, the budget issue, Bush and Gore revised plans to match a growing surplus. This is from June 13th, the year 2000. Projections of the federal budget surplus are likely to be revised upward by as much as $1 trillion in coming weeks, leading Vice President Al Gore and Governor George W. Bush to prepare differing claims to the windfall. For Mr. Gore, 
More money means new initiatives to encourage savings and improve education, health care, and environmental protection, as well as speed his plan to reduce the national debt, his aides say. For Mr. Bush, it's a chance to assert that his plans for a big tax cut, the creation of private investment accounts within Social Security, and a national missile defense program are not only affordable, but also leave plenty of money for additional debt reduction, his aides say, unquote. He's going to privatize Social Security yep. because we had a budget surplus. That meant he could privatize Social Security. Yeah, yeah. They, they yep. wanted that money in the stock market so bad. So bad, yeah. Uh-huh. W had very different ideas about what to do with that surplus. When I become the president, I'll set clear priorities for our budget. And there's a fundamental disagreement about what to do with the money. Our opponents sound like they think the government owns the surplus. I think the surplus is the people's money, and I want to share some of it with the people who pay the bills. And on December 12, 2000, thanks to a 5-4 vote by the Supreme Court's conservative majority. Good evening. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And so, just like that, the budget surplus that Democrats had worked so hard to create would be handed over to a dry drunk halfwit whose attitude was, holy mother of God, where do these terrible budget surpluses come from? Jesus Christ, we need to get rid of them immediately. Surpluses are worse than Hitler. Can you believe those crazy libtards actually are still worrying about deficits? For God's sakes, who gives a shit about deficits? We won! And for the record, here are a few other gifts that landed in Bush's lap thanks to eight years of hard work by the Clinton-Gore administration. See if any of this sounds familiar, blue gal. A 3.9% unemployment rate. A robust job growth rate. And the quote-unquote problem of wage inflation caused by too few workers available to fill the available jobs. Oh, what a hellish place that year must have been. (laughs) It sounds very familiar, actually. It really does, doesn't it? And you know what's next, right? Yep. Giant tax cuts for billionaires. Yep. Credible economists like future Nobel Prize winner Paul Krugman warned the Bush administration that their policies could plunge the country right back into deficit. But did they listen? No, they did not. Nope. The shrill one in the New York Times, February 4th, 2001, Reckonings, Guns, and Bitterness. This is Paul Krugman. Isn't the federal government awash in surpluses? Hasn't Alan Greenspan told us that our big economic problem is how to give the money away, lest politicians end up owning the stock market? If there's plenty of money for tax cuts, why won't the administration give the military at least some of what it wants and promise to keep its hand out of the Medicare cookie jar? Because someone in the White House is aware of the truth, which is that there isn't plenty of money after all. Congress is about to go into a tax cut feeding frenzy, adding huge tax breaks for corporations to Mr. Bush's proposal. The spectacle will be distressing, but it will be over quickly. Pretty soon, quite possibly as soon as this summer, we'll be worrying about deficits, not surpluses, Mm -hmm. unquote. Yeah. Yep. So that was on the one hand, right? On the one hand, you got uh, a future Nobel economist saying, guys, if Bush's plans go forward, we're going to go right back to giant deficits, right? On the other hand, you had smug, delusional conservative elites like those at the Weekly Standard 
who had a lot of fun mocking Democrats as feeble-minded alarmists who for worrying about Bush blowing the surplus because that was never going to happen. Never, never, ever, ever was going to happen, period. This is from <clears throat> David Brooks back when he was working at the Weekly Standard in the year 2000, which is why we bloggers have archives because the Weekly Standard doesn't exist anymore, but my archives do. So here's Mr. Brooks back in the year 2000. Quote, the new stupid party. Long ago, the Republican Party was nicknamed the stupid party, and at times Republicans have done their best to live up to the label. But after the past week, it's perhaps time to acknowledge that when it comes to brainless, self-destructive behavior, the Democratic Party has achieved a level of excellence that will be unsurpassed in our lifetime. Last week, the Congressional Budget Office came out with a budget forecast. The report immediately got submerged in the chatterstorm about whether Congress or the White House would dip into something called the Social Security Trust Fund. The Democratic Party proceeded to work itself up into a collective aneurysm. Dick Gebhardt, who, when given the chance to play demagogue, never goes halfway, said that the United States now faces, quote, an alarming fiscal crisis, unquote. Democratic National Chairman Terry McAuliffe said on Face the Nation that it had taken Bill Clinton eight years to build up the surplus, but Bush was able to blow it in eight months. Other Democrats rose up en masse to declare that the Bush administration was going to bankrupt Social Security, the federal government, Western civilization, because the administration is going to have to raid the Social Security Trust Fund, unquote. So, Democrats, make sure you understand what, the, what who the sides are here. Democrats are bedwetting fools that Brooks reassured his readers didn't know anything about anything because even with, quote, the economic slowdown, the Bush tax cut, and the recent congressional spending splurge, the surplus is still projected to grow at about $200 billion a year in 2004 and close to $300 billion a year by 2006, unquote. This is Brooks again in the Weekly Standard, March 16, 2001. It's entitled, quote, Yes, there is a new economy. Thanks to once-in-a-lifetime productivity gains, Bush's plans are easily affordable, unquote. It ends with this paragraph. We are now living at a once-in-a-generation moment of economic opportunity. As productivity grows, the economy will grow. As the economy grows, revenues will grow. Maybe beyond what the CBO projects. The real question about the Bush tax cuts, then, is not can we afford them. The real question is why are they so small? Unquote. He should have that on his tombstone. I swear oh, to God. I'm going to pay for a mile-long tombstone. It's a whole bunch of stuff that belongs <laughs> you, on David You have Brooklyn all too. of them in your archives, too. I do. So make a note of that date, however. March 16th, 2001. Because now we are going to jump ahead just a little over a year later to a conversation between then-Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill and Vice President Dick Cheney in November of 2002. This was reported in the Chicago Tribune in 2004. Quote, former Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill said he was told deficits don't matter when he warned of a looming fiscal crisis. In a new book chronicling his rocky two-year tenure and in an interview with CBS's 60 Minutes that aired Sunday, Paul O'Neill also said President Bush balked at his more aggressive plan to combat corporate crime because of opposition from 
the corporate crowd. <laughs> we want to keep criming. Corporate criming, Blue Gal. Corporate, corporate criming. criming. Right, mm-hmm. right. That sounds familiar, too. O'Neill said he tried to warn Vice President Dick Cheney that the growing budget deficits posed a threat to the economy. Cheney cut him off, O'Neill said. You know, Paul, Reagan proved deficits don't matter, he said. According to excerpts, Cheney continued, we won the midterms. This is our due. A month later, in December 2002, Cheney told the Treasury Secretary he was fired. Because apparently the vice president gets to make personnel decisions in the Bush White House. Well, you know who was running the White House. We all know who was running the White House. Absolutely. The vice president's office had no immediate comment. John Snow, who replaced Paul O'Neill, said, Bush is committed to cutting the deficits in half over the next five years, unquote. You know nothing, John Snow. Yeah, you know nothing. But there weren't supposed to be any deficits. There was plenty of money for everything. And according to extremely respected conservative frauds, there always would be. We really, why weren't the tax cuts so small, Driftglass? Yeah, they, they, there's always going to be plenty of money in the right. banana stand, Blue Cow. Always. So <clears throat> here's a series of questions. A, where the hell did these deficits suddenly come from? Yep. B, if, according to Republicans five minutes ago during the Clinton administration's deficits were worse than five Hitlers, how is it that now they're not only nothing to worry about, but they are the rightful spoils of Republicans winning the midterms? And C, Reagan proved deficits don't matter? Really? That really kind of gives the game away here. Yeah, yeah. Saying this stuff out loud always makes it so, because they didn't care. They were going to win. Yeah. Remember, there was going to be a permanent Republican majority forever and ever, and they were never going to have to worry about, you know, making good on anything they ever had to say. Well, not really, because since the media immediately buried this little tidbit in the same memory hole where they buried the rest of the failed Bush administration, no one remembers any of this stuff, which is why we have a podcast called No Fair Remembering Stuff. And for the rest of the Bush administration, that deficit that was never going to happen grew faster than at any point in American history. This is from CBS News, July 15, 2003. Quote, deficit projections soar to $455 billion. The Bush administration dramatically raised its budget deficit projections on Tuesday to $455 billion for this year and $475 billion for next. Record levels fed by the limp economy, tax cuts, and the battle against terrorism. Quote, the deficit certainly remains, certainly remains a concern, but it's one that's manageable, and it's one that we are addressing. White House spokesman Scott McClellan told reporters, quote, over the next few years, we will cut this deficit in half. It is a priority that we are addressing, unquote. <laughs> Bullshit. Bullshit. Uh-huh. So having entered office with the Clinton-Gore budget surplus, gift-wrapped and waiting on his desk on the day they started office, What did the budget look like in 2009 on the day Bush and Cheney left office? Well, most of you know the answer to that. Combined with the Bush administration's unpaid for Medicare prescription drug plan, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, an economy deep, deep, deep in recession, and several massive tax cuts, mostly for billionaires, by the end of the Bush administration, the annual federal budget deficit had climbed to $1.4 trillion, with a T, dollars. 
And instead of paying off the national debt held by the public, which was one of the things Al Gore had proposed we do, the total national debt ballooned from $5.7 trillion in 2001 to $10.7 trillion by the end of 2008. And I will say there have been several economists who have said, look, we need to have a little bit of debt. Uh-huh. You know, our economy, the world economy, our, our standing in the world and so forth is based yeah. on credit. And being debt free is not necessarily the greatest thing in the world. It's not a household economy. We're not running a restaurant. We're the federal government. That's that's. That's understandable. We need people to buy our... This is Alexander Hamilton. This goes back to Hamilton. We need people to buy our debt that makes us credible and that makes us a a credible nation. Um, And that's the way the debt works. And so people were like, uh, let's maybe not go crazy on paying down the national debt. You know, we're going to need a little bit of that floating around. But that was actually something that Clinton and Gore talked about doing Mm -hmm. uh, with this surplus that they had worked so hard and, frankly, scrimped on programs that we loved and we were furious weren't getting fully funded. Um, But then again, Bush comes along. So that was the Bush administration. And then what happened, Blue Gal? Well, then Barack Obama was elected. And in the face of the worst economic calamity in 75 years, the Republican Party did what the Republican Party always does. It flipped instantly, once again, from the party of deficits, who cares, the party of, oh my God, deficits have mysteriously appeared out of nowhere, and this Kenyan usurper must cut every social program. Forget about saving the auto industry, forget about this crazy American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, and pay down the deficit, pay it down now, 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 now. This is when the Republican Party base passed through the portal of the magical Bush-off machine <laughs> and emerges the Tea Partiers, who had never supported Bush, didn't even know his name. Or his ruinous policies. They'd never even been politically active. However, they did personally hate Barack Obama with the heat of a thousand suns and blamed him for every single one of the nation's problems. This is from December 31st, 2012. The author is a guy named David Brooks. You all know him (laughs) as the man who swore there would never be deficits again. This is in 2012 when he used his column in the New York Times this time to lecture all sensible people about what everyone should agree on regarding the deficits, which should never have happened. Quote, except for a few rabid debt deniers, almost everyone agrees that we have to do something fundamental to preserve these programs, Medicare and Social Security, etc. The problem is that politicians have never found a politically possible way to begin. Every time they try to reduce the debt, they end up borrowing more and making everything worse, Blue Gal, unquote everything worse. The problem is politicians who never did anything ever right ever, except, of course, for the entire fucking Clinton administration, which has now disappeared down the memory hole. Not the Republicans who sabotaged every offer the Obama administration made to fix, to team up, to fix our problems. Just politicians. And Bush? Bush? Never heard of the guy. Never heard of the man. Another group who are to blame? A group called Voters, Blue Gal. (laughs) This is Brooks again from December 31st, 2012. Ultimately, we should blame the American voters. Many voters have decided they like spending a lot on themselves and pushing costs onto their children and grandchildren, unquote. God, just... It's those greedy senior citizens and their Medicare and Social Security. It's what he's saying, right? Is there anyone else who belongs in the barrel? Anybody else who is around to blame? Well, of course there is, because it wouldn't be a real, true David Brooks column without the inevitable both sides do it Razor in the apple. 
quote, a large number of reactionary Democrats react, reject any measure, blah, 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 and, quote, a large number of impotent Republicans talk about reducing the debt, but are incapable of blah, blah, blah. Yes, both sides are to blame. Both sides are to blame. Everybody but people like David Brooks, who said this would never be a problem, is to blame. David Brooks, who rode his incompetence from managing editor of the Weekly Standard to having a permanent column on the New York Times. Wow. But the Obama-Biden administration kept after it, dragging the economy back from the brink of disaster, including saving the auto industry. Uh-huh. All while Republicans and the mainstream media screamed that they should drop everything else and focus on nothing but massive budget cuts mm-hmm. during a recession. Mm-hmm. Worst recession. Worst recession in 75 years. Yep. Slowly, things did get better. Even the deficit went down from PolitiFact, September 5th, 2014, quote, at a union rally on Labor Day, Obama declared, we cut our deficits by more than half. The numbers back up Obama's claim, thanks to income tax revenues rising and spending on emergency assistance dropping, America's deficit has fallen by more than 50%. From its highest point since World War II, to a level $733 billion lower. We rate the claim true, unquote. Yeah. yeah. It's going great. Everything was going great. Then along came Donald Trump, who, despite all the shouting and snarling and whining from never-Trumpers, Trump actually passes the is he a true conservative, is he a real Republican test with flying colors. And just exactly what is that test? Now, come on, kids. We just talked about this tax like 15 minutes ago. Tax cuts for billionaires, Driftglass. Tax cuts for billionaires. That's the only thing they care about. <laughs> the only thing true conservatives care about is cutting taxes for the rich at all times. And under all circumstances, there is no problem so great that they can claim cannot be solved with big enough tax cuts. Wars may come and go. All that blather about abortion and guns and the border and trans rights are just a means to get the meatheads angry enough to go to, the vo- to go to the polling places to vote enough Republicans in so they can have their goddamn tax cuts. And during his four years in office, what was Donald Trump's single major legislative achievement? A tax cut for billionaires, Driftglass. We begin tonight with the breaking headline today from the White House. President Trump unveiling what the White House is calling the biggest tax cut in American history. The new policy unveiled, it's a one-pager. Also a mystery? How would the plan affect the president and his family's business? Unknowable because he hasn't released his tax returns. And what was the Republican reaction? What did this do to the deficit? Well, Trump flacks like Steve Mnuchin were all over Fox News promising that this massive tax cut would somehow decrease the deficit by $1 trillion. Because money is magic. Magic Mm -hmm. math, right. Mm -hmm. What was the actual effect on the deficit? Well, Nikki Haley from this morning, as we're recording on the day today, we're recording. Here's what Nikki Haley had to say. Meanwhile, Trump added more to the national debt than any president in history. And it wasn't because of COVID, no matter how many times he tries that excuse. And... Looking back from the Washington Post, January 14th, 2021, quote, one of President Donald Trump's lesser known but profoundly damaging legacies will be the explosive rise in the national debt that occurred on his watch. 
The financial burden that he's inflicted on our government will wreak havoc for decades, saddling our kids and grandkids with debt. There's that myth again, right? Uh-huh. Yep. The national debt has risen by almost $7.8 trillion during Trump's time in office, unquote. And the Republican Party, from its leadership to the base to the propagandists on Fox, did not care. Not one little bit. And looking back, the it's ironic that the only time anyone was ever put on trial for screwing up this country in 2017 was in a commercial by Ridley Scott back in 1985. Right, right. Um, now, now that Joe Biden's in office, right? Trump has gone. Joe Biden's comes in. So what is the natural and normal reaction by the media and by conservative think tanks? Obviously, it's going to be somewhat different. From Bloomberg News, October 24th, 2023, quote, deficit worries make a return as 2024 political issue. After lying dormant as an issue for the past couple of elections, the soaring U.S. budget deficit is starting to matter again in Washington, unquote. From the National Review, March 24th, 2023, quote, taxing the rich isn't the way to reduce the deficit. This is from the Cato Institute, May 4th, 2023, quote, Biden's budget is an unserious attempt at reining in runaway deficits, unquote. From the Heritage Foundation, I cannot read this with a straight face, Mm -hmm. September 27th, 2023, quote, how Washington's $7.5 trillion deficit spending spree is bankrupting America. Mm Mm-hmm. This is also from the National Review, but from October 24th, 2023, quote, markets are sounding the alarm on deficits because you know how markets are, blue gal, unquote. One last one, again, from the Heritage Foundation, November 3rd, 2023, quote, the fuse on America's debt bomb just got shorter. But Reagan, Reagan showed us deficits don't matter. Deficits don't class. matter. Deficit. So, so. Pop quiz now at the end of the podcast as we as we're winding this thing down. Is Trump a true conservative? Is he a real Republican? And the answer is of course he is. He checks the only important box they peak, those people care about, and he checks it bigly. And the party and the media are happy to follow his lead. Now yeah, I remember when he failed because of John McCain's thumb right. to undo Obamacare. Yes. And what the next day, it was Republican mega donors are telling the Trump administration, if you don't pass a tax cut, we're done with you. Yeah. Very transactional. And Trump is transactional. And he will do he will do all of the things for people that will give him something. So tax cuts for billionaires move the Israeli uh, embassy embassy to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And ban put anti-abortion judges on the bench. Yep, he doesn't give a shit about abortion. He's going to be able to buy all the abortions he ever needs. Send women to Norway, put them on a plane, whatever doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Transactional politics is what he does, and so absolutely he's a true conservative. He walked around restaurants in New York City saying, "You guys are going to get a lot of money from me." And that's it. That's all that matters to expensive yep. restaurant patrons. You guys are going to get money from me, so you better like me. And you know the, yeah. the those remember those dear leader cabinet meetings that were so creepy as hell. Like, yeah. how how much do you love the dear leader? I love him more than you. You're the greatest, finest, sweetest smelling, yeah. sexiest, 
He went around the table. Yeah. Oh, and and everybody tried to outdo each other with how much they love the dear leader. And one of the one of the ones that I watched the video of, I I had to wash my eyes out with bleach after I did all the research for this Mm -hmm. thing. But one of them was him sitting in a cabinet meeting saying, "Well, the two things we did that are basically done (coughs) are uh, tax cuts, and we got rid of Obamacare. Uh, Now we had to hide Obamacare and the tax stuff." Because, you know, the fake media would jump all over it and, and bash our heads for it. But uh, Obamacare is dead. And uh, we did that. So we got rid of Obamacare. It's dead in, in this bill. It, this kills Obamacare. And we get the tax cuts, the giant tax cuts. And he's sitting there with that arms crossed, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, that Mussolini look on his face. You know, talking about the fake news media. You know, if they found out we really killed Obamacare, they'd be really mad. But it's fake news. And everyone around the table is just jerking off and applauding because that's all they care about. Literally, all they care about is tax cuts for billions. Tax cuts, and then he got this bug up his ass about Obama because he hates Obama, Mm -hmm. hates him. So Mm -hmm. he has to undo everything Obama does. And so the number one thing Obama did was healthcare reform. So Trump has to gut the damn thing. And but for John McCain's withered old thumb, yeah, he would have done it. Yep. And and there's a little coda at the end of this, isn't there, Blue? Yeah. add um this is a reporter who i believe is from the daily caller talking to jen saki in the early years of the biden administration about build back better and again build back better was overloaded with pay-fors right and making sure that there was a tax increase for corporations for every dime build back better was going to spend that they were never going to increase the deficit to get this plan passed and i still have great hopes that build back better in some form will pass because we need the care economy you do but the daily caller reporter just listen to how the daily caller reporter pushes the envelope and tries to reframe what is actually going on really tries to bend reality here it is build back better will not add a dime to the national debt correct it won't why would he why why should americans believe that because it won't well, what if taxes that he says he wants to you know, get more taxes in? What if it doesn't happen? What if the economy goes sour? Lots of things can happen. Mm-hmm. What are you, you're going to tell from up there future generations, not even born yet, that they're not on the hook for this. Is that right? That's right. And hopefully you'll report accurate information yourself. So he just will not accept yes for an answer. No, he won't accept the facts as facts. Yeah. Yeah. Because the little pea brains who read the Daily Caller, their heads will explode if yeah. it turns out. No, it's all been carefully thought through. We did math, which I know is you know beyond your capacity, and this is how things work now. Now, this is how the conservative media treats Democrats when they're in office, right? As as you know, it's all our fault, and, and twelve Hitlers, and twelve Hitlers, and fix our shit now, 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 now. Yeah, which is yeah. what's you know reflected in the larger media. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. I mean, all this week, last week, it's all about Biden's age, which is not part of this podcast, but. The, the pushback from the ragged Twitter social media liberal army was, why aren't you people calling for Donald Trump to step down? Why aren't you people talking about Donald Trump's you know call for Russia to sweep through NATO nations if they don't pay their bills? And the answer is, well, you know how those people are. You know, yeah. it's all baked in. Uh, Trump's insane. Republicans are insane. Nobody on that side has any agency, has any conscience. They're basically not really human beings. They're just fucking robots. So why bother with that? The only people we can really push around or talk to or get to listen to us are Democrats. So if we shit on Republicans, they're going to blow up our house. 
Yeah. If we right. shit on Democrats, you'll get mad on Twitter, but that won't. So we're just going to spend our time shitting on. Right. On, we're going to spend Democrats. the time sitting on this side of the seesaw all day long. But, but you can see how you. far yeah. back this goes. It goes all the way back to Reagan. Yeah, oh, it really or earlier. Is. It goes or earlier. Yes. But this, the whole the whole deficit thing. The whole deficit. You know, when Republicans are in office, Republicans don't give a shit, and their their principled is tax cuts will fix everything. Mm-hmm. The Democrat comes into office suddenly. Oh my God! And it ha- it's happened so often. The flip has happened so often that the flip should be the story. Right. But, and that's our point. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is, of course, that the American political news media is dedicated to not remembering the past. Because if Absolutely. you remember the past, you start adding it up and go, wait a minute. Republicans are really evil monsters. They're behind <laughs> pretty much every problem in this country. And what, the only way to fix all the problems we all agree are problem is to get rid of the Republican Party. Now, finally. As much as we wish massive tax cuts were the source of the revenue for this podcast, <laughs> that the magic math of Republicans would magically make this podcast uh, profitable enough to continue running on its own without ever having to ask you for money, it isn't true. Because we live in the real world, and in the real world, what we need are more Patreons to make this podcast fly. So if you can spare five bucks, please spare us five bucks. And visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash ProLeftPod. And thank you so much for doing that. Thank you so much. See you next time. See you next time. The Professional Left Podcast No Fair Remembering Stuff Tuesday edition is recorded under a Creative Commons license. Copyright 2024-25 DGBG Productions.